0: Good to see everybody here today, and all of you, welcome online. We're watching on Zoom. It's the next best thing to being there. Some of you might remember an AT&T long-distance phone commercial. That, that was the line that they came up with. It's the next best thing to being there. Before, we could have imagined seeing each other, actually. You know, just hearing somebody's voice is a good thing, too. So this morning, I want to start with a few oxymorons. You know what an oxymoron is, right? Things that are or might seem to be mutually exclusive. Now, the dictionary definition of an oxymoron is a combination of contradictory or incongruous words such as cruel kindness. Words that, if you think about it, they don't necessarily seem to go together. Here are some examples just for fun. Why? Because oxymorons are seriously funny. Like this sign, parking for drive through service only. Think about that. Or this one, the library is selling free coffee for $1. Maybe they need a dictionary and look up the definition of free. Or how about this one, no motorized vehicles, no bikes, no camping, caution, heavy traffic. Of course, there's the classic oxymoron that we've heard many times before, jumbo shrimp, right? We could cite dozens of other examples, such as open secret, or a popular one in these isolated times, virtual reality. Right? It's either real or it's virtual. It can't really be both. Or exact estimate. I'm going to give you an exact estimate on that. Or minor crisis. I don't know about you, when I have a crisis, it's not minor. Or another one we seem to hear a lot these days, alone together. These are all oxymorons. Finally, for the computer geeks among us, Al, I was thinking of you, Microsoft works. (laughs) But there's another oxymoron that includes two words that should never be used together. Because if these words describe the attitude or behavior of any of us as Christians, as followers of Christ, they are indeed a sad commentary on our sinful nature. And that oxymoron is racist Christian. That's an oxymoron. If we are a Christian and a racist, we are not living up to or walking in the faith we claim to hold. What is the content of our character? In the cultural moment we find ourselves living in now, and this is not going to be news to anybody, It seems like there's only two things in the news, right? You open up a newspaper, you turn on the television news, you get online. The only things that anybody's talking about are COVID and racism. Most news relates to one or the other. Some of them relate to both. Aren't you tired of hearing about these things, like every single day, all the time? We've addressed the ramifications of the virus in the world we live in now in several different ways at TCF including the fact to just look around. We have chairs spread out. We don't have our greeting times. We wear masks when we can't be six feet apart. Most of our podcasts, if you remember those 11 weeks when we couldn't meet together during the shutdown, most of them dealt in one way or another, or at least addressed the idea of the coronavirus and in some ways our response. And we've had sermons that we've preached since we began to meet together again in June that also did that too, so we've addressed that. And that's understandable. It's appropriate. We all live in coronavirus world now, so we can't really escape it. And the Word of God is so rich and it's so real that even though the actual words, COVID and racism, you're not going to find either of those words in Scripture. But if we are faithful to rightly interpret the Word of Truth, we must recognize that Scripture gives us principles to apply to both of these things. Principles that can and should guide our thinking and our response as the world around us just seems to go crazy. But during the shutdown, this additional issue hit our culture hard. We were already reeling from COVID. And then all of a sudden, just like the coronavirus, it seems like it's not going away anytime soon. So this morning, I'd like to examine our response to this particular facet of our cultural moment. Yes, we'll include scripture, but this will be more along the lines of just equipping us to think biblically about how we, this pretty much, look around, lily-white congregation, that's what we are, we're a congregation of believers in Christ, how we might think about and maybe respond to some of these issues. Clearly, this is a big topic, and we can only begin to scratch the surface this morning, I freely admit that what I say this morning will not cover even all the basics, so please don't come up to me after service and say, Bill, you should have said this. this. You know, it's a big topic. We're going to just cover the surface. We're going to uh, just begin to look at this. But I'm hoping it will spark some thinking in us and lay a foundation for all of us as help us in our thoughts about race and racism, because it's an issue in our culture. And it's likely to be with us long after the coronavirus is just a bad memory. Of course, racism isn't new. And it isn't something only Western culture is guilty of. Let's start by getting this one thing clearly. If you get nothing else out of this morning's service, I want you to get this. Racism is a sin. Racism is a sin. And because it's a sin and because, as scripture tells us, there's nothing new under the sun, human beings have been committing this sin of racism since soon after the beginning of time. It's rooted in what we looked at just a few weeks ago, pride, and that's because we generally think we're better than others, and sometimes that poorly formed and too high opinion of ourselves is based on something like outward appearance, such as the color of someone's skin or some other factor based on their outward appearance. We have long understood racism along these lines. Prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people group on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group. Christians have generally understood it as the sin of partiality that's joined with other sins like hatred, arrogance, or greed, all of which lead to sinful prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism. So the sin of partiality isn't always based on race, but it certainly includes race. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, James speaks of how we treat people differently because of wealth or outward appearance, which sometimes illustrates just rich versus poor. We see a lot of classism today in addition to racism. Verse 9, however, can clearly apply to partiality based on the color of skin. It's written there, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, additionally, as believers in Christ, we have the mind of Christ, the word tells us, and that would include seeing things as God sees them. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Great verse for us to keep in mind. Great verse for us to keep in mind always, not just related to racism. The outward appearance certainly must include the color of someone's skin. In addition to things like the clothes somebody might wear that might indicate wealth or how attractive someone might be or it could include other factors. So when we look on or we make pre that's the root of prejudice, right, because of the outward appearance of anyone and we make judgments about people on that alone or even if we make judgments about that on people primarily, in other words that's the primary way we make judgments about people, then we can see that we are committing the sin of partiality. In history, we can clearly see that this sin is often accompanied by, as in the quote we read a moment ago, it's not just partiality. We pile on with hatred, arrogance, greed, and all of which leads to sinful prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism towards someone, again, because of the color of their skin. Now, in our American history, this sin led to the enslavement of people. We cannot and should not defend America's history of slavery. Think about that. People, including some who called themselves Christians, owned other people. Now, I own this cell phone, okay? But think of that. Thinking of treating something like you own it. And that is a a, a really a sad part of our history. That ownership often led, we know, anybody who knows your history, to horrible treatment, treating slaves as less than human, like a cell phone that you can do whatever you want to. I won't and can't judge the salvation of those people who owned slaves. But I can discern their actions. That means about the best spin I can put on Christians who own slaves is they did not rightly interpret Scripture. And they, either willingly or not, had a blind spot in their faith. But here's the thing, I'm sure I do too. I'm sure I do too. I'm sure I have some blind spots in my faith. And I'm sure some of you will come up to me after service and say, yeah, Bill, you do, and I think of this. Nevertheless, I believe that I can state with absolute certainty that this history that we have in America and the fact that slave owners included people who claimed the name of Christ has left a stain on our nation that we are still dealing with to this very day. It's the root of the things that we see on television news every day. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass noted this oxymoron in 1845 when he wrote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. And it's true. If there is anyone who should not be racist, it's those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Even in its mildest manifestations, racism conveys at least a dislike, if not an outright hatred, of certain people groups. We know that Jesus was the literal incarnation of the God whom Scripture describes as characterized by absolute love. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if we love, we've been born of God and we know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's an indictment if we are racist because we're not loving. The Apostle John wrote this and I think he'd be appalled by some who through the centuries have rationalized in some way or explained away or ignored this admonition to love and thus managed to judge or to dislike or even hate people solely because of the color of their skin, rather than, as Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, on the content of their character. More importantly still for us as believers, we are to love people simply because they are created in the image of God. In sad reality, as have followers of other religions, Christians have indeed sometimes failed to live up to what we claim to believe In addition, there's a practical spiritual reality at work here too. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. that's the Bible bowl A verse. all have sinned, Romans 3:23. Because of this spiritual reality, and because racism is indeed a sin, we need the redemption that's found in Jesus alone. Indeed, if all sin is ultimately a byproduct of the fall of man, original sin then racism is just but one product of that fall. Nevertheless, Christians who are racist in their attitudes or they are racist in their actions are not living by what we believe, what we claim to believe is truly the Word of God, the Bible, which we believe is to be our sole authority for what we believe, our faith, and what we do, our practice. Our reasoning in all of this actually starts with the story of origins as human beings now our culture continues to battle over origins that's another sermon but many say we are essentially evolved from the primordial ooze while we as christians believe in an omnipotent god who created the heavens and the earth and later created each of us in his image we read this in genesis chapter one verse twenty seven so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them Now. There's a lot of truth or implications of truth that's offensive to our culture in this one very short little verse. But I want to focus on one thing. Everyone, everyone is created in God's image. There's no hint that one race is somehow better than another. There's no hint that even that there are different races at all. We're all part of the human race. In fact, our culture's idea of race is a biological myth. Science even supports this, not just our faith. Black, white, Asian, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, you name it. In God's eyes, we are all made in his image, and we are all descended from Adam. This is not simply affirmed in the Old Testament book of Genesis, but it's also clearly affirmed in the New Testament. We read in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The English uh, Standard Version of the uh, Study Bible writes of this verse, One man refers to Adam, in whom all people find their ancestral unity, an idea that would appeal to the Stoic strong sense of human brotherhood. This is is from Paul's address on Mars Hill when he was trying to relate to the culture around him. Paul thus affirms the historicity of Adam. In other words, Adam was a real person. He's not a story. He's not an analogy. And the descent of the entire human race from him. This also rules out any kind of racism since the various ethnic groups come from one man. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't think I've said anything controversial this morning at all. I don't think I've said anything controversial. This is a foundational understanding of who we all are. Now, we're not all God's children, as some people claim. You hear that a lot, don't you? Well, we're all God's children. The right to be called as children is given only to those who are in Christ. But we are all God's creation. We are all created in his image, we are made in his image, and we have inherent worth simply because of that biblical fact. And this is the key to the fact that Christian racist or racist Christian is truly an oxymoron, two words that should never be used descriptively together. I encountered this oxymoron soon after I came to Christ as a 16-year-old. The family that led me to the Lord had a ministry in Attica Prison. Some of you may remember Attica Prison, very famous prison riot in the early 1970s. And I lived near there. The father of this family, who was also the father of my girlfriend at the time, that's another story, had a Bible study in the prison. And soon after I trusted Christ, I remembered hearing him talk about this Bible study that he had in the prison. And he would bring his daughters with him to the prison to help with this Bible study, and he told me with some pride how a prison guard told him he admired the work that he was doing. One of the reasons the guard said that he admired his work is because he wouldn't let his daughters interact with the black prisoners. Now, I was raised in a Catholic home and my parents were pretty anti-racist, so I was surprised to hear this example of what I thought was racial prejudice. I was even more surprised when I enrolled at ORU. And sitting one day outside somewhere on campus with my girlfriend, the same girlfriend whose dad had the Bible study in Attica, we were outside one day when a racially mixed couple walked by holding hands. And she said to me, you wouldn't think you'd see something like that on a Christian college campus. She wasn't talking about the minimal display of holding hands as affection. She was talking about the fact that you had a black and white couple together. I was amazed. And I responded, why wouldn't you see that? And she proceeded to tell me, essentially, that interracial relationships were wrong. And so we argued about it briefly, and then I let it go, but it never really sat well with me. Now, I didn't know the biblical basis for why racism is sinful, what we've just rehearsed, what we've just outlined with with Scripture to back it up, because I was a pretty relatively new Christian at that point, but it still didn't feel right to me. I remember the first time I heard the N-word was when my grandfather said it. This was my mom's mom and this was in Cincinnati, so we weren't in the Deep South. That's what we always seem to associate with racism, it's the Deep South. I also remember my mom and dad getting in a pretty heated argument when my uncle called one of my, one of our favorite baseball players, Roberto Clemente, the N-word. So all this to say that I've thought about racial issues since before I was a believer in Christ. And I was amazed to find that after I was a Christian, I could still hear racist attitudes expressed by people who were Christians. Now, actually, after walking with the Lord for over 45 years, I'm less amazed now because I think I have a greater understanding of the deep sinfulness that's deeply rooted in all of us, and racial prejudice is just one manifestation of that. But that's certainly, just because this is just one sin among many, doesn't excuse it. It doesn't excuse it, because the Word calls us to resist sin. The Word calls us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and allowing us, uh, uh, and uh, allowing God to root sin out of our lives. So while I don't believe anything I've said here should be controversial, we still see division and controversy constantly as we consider what are we to do about the reality of racism. We see such deep division in our culture and deep division even in some churches. I believe we must always start, as with any sin, in looking at our own hearts. We should always look at our own hearts. It's easy to look out there and see racism. It's harder to look in here. So we always have to start there with any sin, and racism is no exception. Just as we allow the searchlight of the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts, even as Jim preached last week, he said, examine yourselves, right? Regarding any sin, we should allow God to bring some understanding, conviction, and if necessary, and it may be necessary for some of us and not for all of us, repentance, if we harbor anything racist in our hearts. If we're going to be brutally honest with ourselves, and that's how we have to be when we're dealing with sin, we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. But if we're going to be brutally honest with ourselves and put to death other sins, anything racist in us should be no exception. We should listen carefully to the experiences of our fellow image bearers who happen to be black. And where and when they've been sinned against or wronged or even oppressed, we can stand with them. All this said, we have to also recognize that while it's very true that black lives matter, that doesn't mean we can fully support the goals of the organization Black Lives Matter. This is because there has been a redefinition of what it means to be racist that's more and more accepted in our culture. And it doesn't accurately reflect the Bible's picture of what sin is. This is perhaps best illustrated by a New York Times best-selling book called White Fragility. Anybody heard of that book? Anybody actually read it? Okay, I haven't either. I've read reviews of it, but I haven't read the book. One Christian reviewer says the author of this book has radically redefined the term in such a way that a person who has never had a prejudice thought or taken a discriminatory action is still guilty of racism simply because of his or her identity group. White people are racist because they are white. According to D'Angelo, that's the name of the author of the book, racism is a complex interconnected system into which all white people are socialized to such a degree that racism is unavoidable and it is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic racial assumptions and behaviors. Ironically, the author of this book is white. But we don't need a book like this or other cultural assumptions to define the sin of racism for us or tell us, worse yet, that we can never escape it. We have the Word of God. An example being of the kinds of things that we're looking at and hearing this morning. One of the key problems with our cultural battles about what to do regarding racism, as well as other cultural issues that we could cite, we could go down a long laundry list, but like, for example, the whole LGBTQ XYZ agenda is identity. It's identity. We could spend a whole sermon on that idea. Maybe we should sometime. In our faith, we are all God's creation. But our identity, all of us as God's creature, is one of two things. We're in Christ or we're not. We're in Christ or we're not. Now, here's one example of that from Scripture. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, doesn't talk about the white or black sheep or the white or black goats at the last judgment. There's just the sheep and there's the goats. For those of us who are in Christ, this is our identity. We are in Christ. We may be white or black, we may be rich or poor, we may be Irish or Hispanic or Asian, but as Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this reality doesn't diminish... Or dismiss our different experiences in life. And it also doesn't dismiss or diminish the different roles that God may give us in serving in his kingdom. But it does equal all of us at the foot of the cross. Not so in our culture. More and more we also see the idea in our culture that we have two identities. Only here in our culture it's the oppressor and it's the oppressed. Unfortunately, I, Bill Sullivan, find myself in the most egregiously oppressive group. I'm a white man. The women here are part of an oppressed group just by virtue of being female. But if you're a black female or you're a lesbian, you've got two or three oppressed groups, identities, going for you. There are two concepts at work here. And if you get them, these two concepts, and you embrace them, you're what our culture now calls woke. There's one philosophy called critical theory or in the context of race like we're looking at this morning it's called critical race theory. There's another concept called intersectionality. Now I asked Barb this week if she'd ever heard of those phrases before and she hadn't. Anybody else heard any of those phrases? Critical theory, intersectionality, most of you have heard woke, haven't you? Okay. Well, the fact that so few of us, including my wife, tells us something important. Now, my wife is a very well-read and very intelligent woman, but she'd never come across these phrases. However, when I explained them and gave her examples, she knew immediately what I was talking about. That's because these things are commonly spoken of among academics, especially in secular universities. But they are worked out in the divisive rhetoric and actions in our culture. Now, I want to show you now a six-minute video, so stick with me. It's, it's, it's interesting, and it'll help you. It's one of the many helpful resources that I've read or seen. This video actually does the best job of breaking these ideas down into a manageable and understandable format. So take a look at this as we move along.
1: You're in a conversation, someone says, since God cares about the oppressed, Christians should embrace critical fear. Because it's trying to eliminate oppression. What would you say? Critical theory is one way our culture attempts to explain and confront power structures. Some Christians have embraced it as well. But what is it? To understand critical theory, we need to understand its two primary points. First, everyone can be divided into two groups. Those who have power and those who don't. Second, those who have power always oppress those who don't. How do we know who the oppressed and who the oppressors are? According to critical theory, the categories of oppressor and oppressed are based on your group identity. Things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity determine whether we are oppressed or one of the oppressors. Of course, someone might be part of an oppressed group in one way, but one of the oppressors in another way. That's where the concept of intersectionality comes. Intersectionality seeks to measure someone's level of oppression based on how many of these groups they identify. For example, a black man is less oppressed than a black woman who is less oppressed than a black lesbian. Critical theory. The degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of moral authority. The more categories of oppression someone identifies with, the more moral authority they have. As a result, The experience and perspective of a gay black woman is more valuable than the experience and perspective of a straight white man, regardless of what they have to say. And in the same way, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility they have for their actions. Those who aren't part of oppressed groups, straight white men, gain moral authority by surrendering to those who haven't the oppressed. This is called being woke. Some people claim that since Jesus cares about oppression, critical theory and intersectionality should be embraced by Christians. But critical theory and intersectionality are not consistent with Christianity. And here are three reasons why. First, critical theory offers a different view of humanity than Christianity. Critical theory claims that our identity as human beings is rooted in things like race and gender, features that differ from person to person. The Bible grounds our identity as human beings and the value every human has in the fact that we are created in God's own image. This is something every human being shares. While critical theory pits some groups of people against other groups based on their status as oppressors or oppressed, the Bible says that we are all equal before God. Created equal, equally valuable, equally guilty of sin, equally deserving punishment and equally able to find grace and mercy in Jesus, which leads to the second point. Critical theory offers a different view of sin than Christianity. The Bible identifies sin as anything that violates God's design for people, including unjust oppression of other people. But critical theory identifies sin only as oppression. As a result, Advocates of critical theory would see biblical practices such as discipleship, correction, leadership, and reproof as sinful assertions of power if the speaker is among the oppressors and would excuse sins like jealousy, anger, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, or envy among the oppressed. The Bible says that we are all guilty before God, regardless of social status, race, or economic situation. The Bible condemns oppression as one of but certainly not the only way in which humans rebel against God. Because critical theory gets the problem wrong, it also gets the solution wrong, which leads to the third point. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation than Christianity. According to the Bible, because we are all equally guilty of sin, salvation can only be found in Jesus through repentance. Our hope is found in being forgiven of sin. Because critical theory teaches that oppressors are guilty and the oppressed are not, salvation for the oppressed is found not through repentance, but in social liberation here and now. Their hope is only through activism. In other words, critical theory has a completely different understanding of who we are, what the problem is, and how to fix it than Christianity. So next time someone, surely with good intentions, tells you that Christians should embrace critical theory because Jesus also cares about the oppressed, remember these three things. Critical theory offers a different view of humanity. Our identity is in our status as image bearers and children of God, not in our race, gender, income, or immigrant status. Critical theory offers a different view of sin. Oppression is wrong but it is a symptom and not the disease. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation. We cannot solve our biggest problem. Jesus can. Our hope is not in our circumstances on earth, but our destiny in eternity. For what would you say? I'm Joseph Backl. Thanks for watching. I hope you loved the video. And if you did, make sure you hit subscribe so you can see the next one too.
0: Okay, so again, why is this important for us to grasp? Is this just an academic exercise so we can understand all the things that they're debating about on college campuses among university professors? No, it's not just that. Why is it? It's because it's all around us. The practical outworkings of these things we see every single day in our culture. We might see it in some of our relationships. And so it's important for us to understand that. And whether you've heard these phrases before or not, much of what is happening in this cultural moment is deeply informed by these worldviews that we just saw explained. That's why, though the statement, Black Lives Matter, can and should be affirmed by any Christian, we can say that without any shame at all. Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter, the organization is irrevocably infected by a worldview that no Christian can or should affirm. Now I want to be very careful here too, and I want to be as clear as I can be. Just because someone wears a t-shirt saying Black Lives Matter or sports a bumper sticker or posts a meme on social media doesn't mean they understand or promote the ideologies of identity like critical theory and intersectionality that we just looked at these people may be like Barb and have never heard these ideas articulated like most of us here have never heard this before they may be genuinely concerned when they see an unarmed black man injured or killed and they just want to say something about that they may have seen the video of George Floyd with a police officer kneeling on his neck so long that he suffocated and just think well that's unjust I want to do something about that I think as Christians unless or until we have evidence to the contrary, we can and should give the benefit of the doubt in such cases, just as we might want people to give the benefit of the doubt to police officers and not assume that they're all racist and they should be defunded because they're all racist, just because some of them have behaved in possibly racist ways. I remember being very annoyed when the late-term abortionist George Tiller was murdered in Wichita a few years ago, and pro-aborts at that point kept saying that pro-lifers were responsible for killing him. And I wanted to say, the guy who killed George Tiller was not like me, and I didn't appreciate being included in the category of a murderer just because he did something that I thought was just as sinful as the abortionist that he killed. If, so if you don't like being labeled a racist, let's not be so quick on the other hand to label someone with a different perspective as a Marxist or a communist. They may be, but they may not be. Like Inigo Montoya said, you keep using that word and I don't think it means what you think it means.
1: He didn't follow! Inconceivable! You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means.
0: Sometimes we don't know what we're saying, right? We just don't know what we're saying. I think it's very possible that many who proclaim the statement, Black Lives Matter, do not understand the roots and the goals of the movement, but they agree with the statement, like I think most of us here do, hopefully all of us. Let's not assume also that all demonstrators are rioters. However, when the so-called peaceful protests are marked by violence and destruction, Or when two of the three founders of the organization Black Lives Matter describe themselves with their own words, we are trained Marxists, I think we have to take them at their word when they say things like that and try to understand that the movement isn't just about racial equality because words mean something, my brothers and sisters. We are a people of the word who follow the word made flesh, the living word. So it's wise to explain what we mean when we use words, and truly understand the implications of those words. Here's a good verse for us. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Isn't that a very, very appropriate word for this hour of history in which we are living? It seems almost impossible to have a conversation about race today. But let's not allow this time in history to keep us from examining ourselves. Let's not allow this divided cultural season to keep us from repenting when and if we need to. Let's be quick to listen. Let's be slow to speak, especially on social media. You know, we don't have to say everything or write everything that pops into our heads. We can see daily, every day, how destructive that is, on Facebook and on Twitter and other social media platforms. Martin Luther King, Jr., we mentioned him a moment ago, he said in 1963, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. We as believers in Christ can affirm that dream. We don't have to mitigate it or or question it by saying, well, Martin Luther King this, Martin Luther... What he said is right and true. Sadly, much of today's civil rights movement is very different from the movement of the 1960s, which produced this statement. What is the context, content of our character? Does it include racial prejudice? Don't we want that dream? Don't we, you know, that's a dream of eternity, right? In eternity, we're all going to be together. Black, white, Asian, you name it. We're all going to be together. That's a dream that reflects eternity. And sometimes I really doubt if it's fully possible in this sinful world. Just like Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. And so I've heard some people use that as an excuse. Well, then, okay, let's just, let's, we just have to live with that because Jesus said it, right? You'll always have the poor with you. No. Does that mean we shouldn't help the poor? No. There are a lot of things that may not be possible, but we still work toward, we still pray for. So let's work toward, let's pray for that the stain of racism will diminish. It will stop dividing us. It will stop prejudicial thoughts and prejudicial deeds. That we would play our part in bringing the ministry of reconciliation that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ to our racial divide. Let's apply that ministry of reconciliation again, which is only in the gospel. Racial reconciliation is nothing without the gospel. It's nothing. There's no reconciliation apart from the reconciliation that we have in God through Christ Jesus. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word which speaks so clearly to so many different things in our life and in our culture. We're grateful that even though the word racism, the idea of racism uh, is included in your word, even though the word is not. So Lord, we thank you for the principles that we can gain from hearing your word and following and obeying your word, Lord, that really do impact this issue. We do pray, Father, that we would always be quick to examine our own hearts first. We would always be slow to speak. We would be quick to listen. And, Father, that as we are ambassadors for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we would bring the message of reconciliation to you even more than we would bring the reconciliation of races together because we know that without you, without peace with God, we can't have peace with each other. So we pray these things, Father. We pray that our hearts would be soft towards you always and that we wouldn't succumb to the division that we see in this nation and this world. We commit these things now to you. In Jesus' name, amen.